John chapter 7, verse 53. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. What a remarkable, remarkable story. And we are amazed before you, Lord, at how you handled such a situation. And I pray you'll help us to understand it today. Not only what it meant to her back then, not only what it means to us today, but what it tells us about you, Lord. We pray for open hearts to hear your word today in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, is the last feast of the year in Israel. And this was the last Sukkot Jesus would celebrate, at least until the coming kingdom. And as you may recall from our study last week, on the great day, the final day of that festival week, Jesus stood up and proclaimed himself to be the source of Chai Magim, living water. He said back in chapter 7, verse 37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus wasn't talking about chilling by a stream. That phrase, rivers of living water, we talked about, is literally out of him will flow rivers, will gush torrents of living water. It's not quiet waters. It's not still waters. It's not Psalm 23, verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. That's Manucha Mayim. Quiet waters, restful waters. Now he offers that. Jesus brings a peace that is unlike any other. But he described rushing, gushing, living waters. As we said again, a gushing torrent of his spirit. An overflowing, overwhelming, constant spring of satiation and strength. That's what Jesus called out the day before the event we're about to look at took place. I'm living water from me. Living water will flow from within you if you come to me. And so my question to you is who gushed over Jesus this past week? Who can say in the last seven days you live life in the overflow? How many of you were gushing torrents of living water from your innermost being since last Sunday? 
I'm not going to let this go. Jesus invites us to gush. And it is okay as followers of Jesus to gush torrents of His Spirit. To walk in the Spirit, to be enlivened by the Spirit, and to be different than this world, because indeed we are filled with Jesus. I'm afraid 2,000 years of religion has crushed a bit of that Spirit. I think we've learned too much of how to do things properly, and look proper, and act properly. And I'm not saying that we should be out of control, but I'll tell you what, gushing torrents of living water is something far different than we see in most of us wandering through our lives on a daily basis. No offense, I'm talking about me. And how there's almost a a, a subtle fear, maybe fear is too strong a word, but there's a subtle sense among Christians not to overdo it. Not to be too excitable. Not to say too much about Jesus. Be careful. You know, be, be calm and measured. Well, that doesn't sound like gushing torrents to me. And I think this is something we got to deal with, gang. If we are going to claim to have Jesus absolutely living and dwelling in us, then He promised an overflow that is so constant, you never stop overflowing. A spring of water within you never ceases to bubble up. Gushing for Jesus. Not surprisingly, the phrase living waters, that exact phrase is used seven times in the Bible. Three times in the New Testament, as we've seen, John 7.38, where Jesus said, from His innermost being will flow gushing torrents of, of living water. Back in John chapter 4, verse 10, where He promised the same thing to the woman at the well. And John chapter 4, verse 11, where she repeated what He said, living waters, I want that. So three times in the New Testament, four times in the Hebrew Scriptures, we see the phrase living waters. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13, For my people have committed two evils, the Lord says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. The prophet himself is speaking. He says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. And that's the second time we see that phrase used. The third time, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. Which speaking of the coming kingdom says, In that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. Now, by the way, that's crazy enough to go around talking about the coming kingdom. Are you going to share that with people? You're a weirdo. Welcome to weird. I got a chance to listen to, to Ray's teaching while I was gone, and I loved it. John was weird. Right on. John was just weird. It, made me, it, it gave me such great comfort, Ray. <laughs> but to proclaim a coming kingdom, a new kingdom on earth, in the current political climate, both here and in the world, are you kidding me? That's nuts. That's weird. It's true. And Zechariah the prophet said, hey, out of the temple in Jerusalem, living waters are just going to flow. I can't wait to see that. And my Bible promises it to be the case. By the way, so does your Bible. Same Bible. 
Now there's one more verse that uses that phrase, living waters. I'll get to that in a little bit. But I am so excited to see the living waters flowing out of Jerusalem someday. I get excited when we go to Israel and go to En Gedi and we see the waterfalls coming down through the cracks and crevices of the mountain hold where David hid out. I love it there. It's beautiful. It's refreshing. But to see that gushing torrent of living water flowing off the temple mount as will happen in the kingdom is going to be marvelous. Truth is, we need living water today. The world needs living water today. For us not to gush the living water of Jesus now is to walk into a dry and thirsty world with a backpack filled to the brim with bottled water and not offer anything to anyone. It's actually the desert scene in The Three Amigos. <laughs> Have you seen the movie? The old Three Amigos with Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, and Martin Shorts. One of my favorite all-time movies, I confess. And there's a scene where they're in the desert, and it shows Steve Martin, and he's riding on a horse, and he's got his little cowboy suit on, and he's just, you know, sweat pouring down his face, and he's, he's parched. And then there's another scene that shows Martin Short riding beside him, and he takes his canteen and pours it open, and dirt just pours out onto his face. And they look over, and Chevy Chase has an entire water bottle, and he's he throws it on the ground, and it guzzles out onto the ground, and he takes out some chapstick and puts it on his lips. You guys want some? Living water. We have living water in a dry world, and the world needs it because the wells to which most people go today can never satisfy. They think they will. You know, the annual vacation. Man, I just got to make it to the summer and my vacation. That's what I need. And then I'll be refreshed. And perhaps for a day or a week or so, you are. Occasional celebrations. If I can just get through the holidays to Christmas. (laughs) That'll be fun and joyful. And we work so hard. You know, every fall, how many families work so hard to try and make Christmas happen. And it's just exhausting. And it does not quench thirst. And we wire around the day after going, why did we do this again? I give you fair warning. I'm not even sure how many shopping days there are till Christmas. Ask Kathy Mao. <laughs> and in some cases, our thirst drives us to vain imaginations. And people just stay thirsty. On the day our story takes place, it's the day after the Feast of Booths. The day after that great celebration in Israel. The greatest of the feasts. The most joyful of any of the feasts of Israel. The one that the people come to party. They come to celebrate. They come to rejoice in the Lord. It is harvest time and everybody's happy and everybody comes to be blessed. But now the feast is over. Another celebration come and gone. Time to get back to real, everyday life. The week of the water libation has ended. And now you just got to get back to it. And on that day, another escape from reality, an adulterous affair, came to an abrupt and, for the moment, shameful end. Before we even get there, i got to ask the question, why do affairs happen? And the answer is very simple. Vain imaginations. Someone in their marriage is dry and thirsty. 
not getting out what they had hoped to get out of a marital situation. And so in that dryness, in that thirst, they go looking somewhere else. They think, perhaps I can draw from another well. Perhaps there's another place that I can drink and it will satisfy my thirst. But you know, even in an affair situation, ultimately, life settles back in. Even when the adulterous affair leads to a a, a new marriage, a new couple, and this one's going to be right, and this one's going to work, the days, the weeks go by, and people start to get dry again, because there is no well on the planet that satisfies. And in that dryness, often affairs will take place again, and again, because affairs are not real life. I shouldn't have to speak this to a church of followers of Jesus, but I do. Because the number of affairs that happen among Christians is no different than the number of affairs that happen among non-Christians. Which is tragic to me, and it tells me that far too many Christians are drawing from the wrong well. Are unaware of the living water. Affairs are not real life. They are flights of fancy. They're diversions from the dryness. They're escapades of exhilaration that crash and burn and they always, they always give way to reality. I wonder sometimes, what is it that makes a person think that someone who has an adulterous affair with them won't have an adulterous affair against them? And it just makes no sense to me. If you will cheat on your husband, why should I believe you won't cheat on me? If I was in that situation. And so the Lord lays out the seventh commandment, Exodus chapter 20 verse 14, He says, you shall not commit adultery. And it's not because God is trying to be a killjoy, no fun. It's because He knows you will not be satisfied. You will only be broken and torn and hurt. Same with the spouse and same with the person with whom you have the affair. Don't do it, God says. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 3. Solomon is giving wise advice to his son and he says, The lips of an adulteress drip honey. I like honey. And smoother than oil is her speech. Man, give me some... Pure virgin olive oil into which to dip my bread? Yes, that sounds marvelous. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. See, that's the truth underneath the veneer. Now, you ladies might say, well, what about the adulterous man? And I think it cuts both ways. You know, Solomon's talking to his son. There's a father-son thing here. But the adulterer, the adulteress may seem like everything needed to quench the thirst at the beginning, but are always ultimately bitter as wormwood. Their feet go down to death. That's what the scriptures have to say about adultery. And with that as background, it was an arid day in Jerusalem when the dry-throated Pharisees dragged a thirsty woman out of such a false fantasy and onto the dusty ground of the temple right in front of Jesus, the source of living water. Verse 53 tells us, Everyone went to his home. But Jesus went to the mount of olives. Now before we even get any further, before we even read the first verse 
or the first word of verse 53, look at what comes right before the first word. In most of your Bibles, is there a bracket? And what we see is the entire story is bracketed from verse 53 of chapter 7 down to verse 11 of chapter 8. The whole thing is in brackets. And the margins in your Bible may indicate that's because this story was absent from the most early ancient manuscripts. And because the story was absent, it's brought into question. Is the story true? If the story is true in the Bible, then is it in the right place? Most conservative biblical scholars accept the historical authenticity of the story for many different reasons, even if they disagree about the placement. You know, the NSB puts it right here, placed in brackets. Some other others put it in different places. Why is that? Some of the early manuscripts that omit the story here include it at the end of John, like a postscript. It's interesting. Some put it at other places throughout John chapter 7. And some of those manuscripts even have it showing up after Luke 21 verse 36. So obviously there was some confusion about where the story should go, but there was not confusion about the fact that the story happened. It was more about where. What's really interesting to me is that in some of those early manuscripts as well, the story is absent, but there's a blank space. Now, you know in in the Greek manuscripts early on, there were no chapters and verses. That was added much later, so it was just the writing. It was just a scroll of the Gospel straight through. There wouldn't be a pause between a chapter 7 and a chapter 8, so no reason for a blank space at all. And yet... A space is here. Imagine your Bible without chapter and verse and just a big space right there where the story is. Why is the space there? What's going on? Did the early scribes know they were omitting the story and feel a little awkward about it so they left it there just in case someone wanted to put it back in later? St. Augustine claimed that this story was deleted because of a moral fear or a prudish concern among early believers that it might encourage or show tolerance for adultery. And perhaps that's the case. That those in the early church said, it's a wonderful story, but it just it, it opens that door even ever so subtly, so we, we really shouldn't be repeating this. Jesus went a little too far. <laughs> Interesting. Because if you study through the entire Bible, if you study through all of chapter 8, at least as far as I can tell, Jesus seems to refer to this incident immediately after it happens in his debate with the Pharisees in the rest of chapter 8. We saw some of that on Wednesday night. John chapter 8 verse 15, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. Well, when did the Pharisees judge according to the flesh? Well, if the story happened right here, they just had. They grabbed a woman caught in adultery and threw her in front of Jesus, judging according to the flesh, not knowing anything about her heart, her life, her story. Just judgment. Just trapping Jesus. Or John 8.34, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Again, perhaps a reference to what had just happened with this adulterous woman. Or John 8.46, where Jesus says, Which one of you convicts me of sin? 
If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? And so as you read throughout, there's a sense and there's a reason why some of the later manuscripts do place the story right here, right where I think, personally, and it's just my opinion, it's where I think it belongs. And I would agree with the conservative scholars who say this story is absolutely authentic and absolutely true. And from a spiritual standpoint, answer me this, I asked this on Wednesday night, does the story ring true of Jesus? Does it fit with His teachings? Does it align with His character? Is this something He would do? I think by the time we're done with our study this morning, you're going to say even more so, absolutely. Absolutely. So verse 53, everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Let's stop right there. That's interesting to me. Every time Jesus went to Jerusalem, when he didn't cross over the Mount of Olives to stay with friends in Bethany, the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary, he would just cross the Kedron Valley, go onto the Mount of Olives and just spend the night there, sleeping out under the stars. Everyone else went home. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Because you see, everyone else had a home. In Matthew 8.20, Jesus said the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Jesus didn't have a home. Didn't have one to go to. So He went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, verse 2, He came again into the temple... And all the people were coming to Him and He sat down and began to teach them. Verse 20 tells us that Jesus was seated in the women's court. The women's court was the first court as you came into the primary area of the temple complex. There was the court of the Gentiles all around it. Come through Solomon's porch into the court of the Gentiles which surrounded the temple. And then from there you could come into the women's court. It's called the women's court. It doesn't mean that only women could go there. All Israel could men and women, but it was the court into which the women could come. The next court, called the court of Israel, only the men could go in there. And then the next court was the court of the priests, which the the altar and the laver were in, and then on into the main temple itself. And oftentimes Jesus is found there in the women's court. It's also called the treasury. It's that same area in the temple. And he would go there and teach there. Verse 3 says, The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her at the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. In the very act. I mean, this is ridiculously brazen. But think about this. If Jesus didn't teach in the women's court, this couldn't have happened. If Jesus was teaching in the court of Israel, where only the men could go, the scribes and the Pharisees would not have dragged the woman in there. They would have violated their own laws in doing so. So the very fact that Jesus was in the women's court, accessible to everyone, made Him accessible for them to drag this woman before Him. And it's a low-down, dirty, disgusting thing that they did. These peeping Pharisees. (laughs) I mean, they had to know, right? They had to know enough about the affair to arrest her in the very act, quote-unquote, as the Scripture tells us. 
So someone among the Pharisees was aware of this affair. Someone knew it was happening and someone was keeping an eye so that they could grab her. And I think so that they could exploit her as bait for Jesus. And in verse 5 they say, In the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were saying this testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now, did the law really say that? Not exactly. Let me read to you what the law says about adultery. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who committed adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Again, Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus, you shall purge the evil from Israel. That's God's word. Where was the man? This woman. Man, it's like we're back to the sin in the garden, isn't it? Adam, did you eat of the tree that I told you? The woman made me do it. It's her fault. Catch the woman, Lord. And they drag her before Jesus. God's Word is serious about adultery. The law had zero tolerance for it. Let's be clear. To adulterate something is to corrupt that which was previously pure. How does the Lord feel about adultery? Brothers and sisters, let's be absolutely clear. It is an evil worthy of the death penalty. In God's theocracy, adultery brought about the death penalty. And so they cry, stone the woman! But it's just the woman. Some think because of this that the man in this affair was a Pharisee. Or perhaps was a plant to entrap the woman to entrap Jesus. But the whole thing stinks to low hell. (laughs) By the way, this story also rings true of the legalism of the Jewish leaders. They were not interested in keeping the law. Or both would be present. They were only interested in trapping Jesus. But we still have to ask this question. Why was the law so harsh? Why the death penalty for an adulterous affair? Three things to note in the story this morning. Number one, please understand, the law can only condemn. The law can only condemn. With the sole exception of Jesus Christ, every man and woman adulterates the law. Everyone, every born on the planet, with the exception of Jesus... Causes that which is previously pure, that which is perfect, the law of God, the perfect law of God, to be adulterated, to be corrupted. One way or another. As we studied through the Torah, indeed all the Hebrew scriptures recognize what Paul would later say. And that is Romans 5.20, that the law came in so the transgression would increase. The law, all it did was shine a light on the sin of mankind. Shine a light on the reality of how sinful we really were. Before the law came, we didn't know how bad it was. You know, we can play those games in our minds that we're really okay. I I do some things on the side. I'm a a little shifty, but I'm mostly a good guy. And it's all a lie. And the law of God is like, the light is on. 
And I look and I realize how simple I truly am. The law can only condemn. Now, good news, Paul said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But Paul makes it clear, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death penalty for adultery? Yes. Because the law can only condemn. And the Lord didn't give it to be condemning. What the Lord was doing with Israel and through Israel for the larger world was teach us about the dark, pernicious ugliness of sin. Sin is not what it looks on the surface. It is not lips dripping with honey. It is not speech as smooth as oil. It is death. And it it is ugly. And it is life destroying. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But the Lord giving the law says, look, sin's a bad deal. But then, He contrasts that with the bright, gentle beauty of grace. As Jesus comes into the world, the the contrast between Jesus here with the woman and the Pharisees calling out the law for the woman is stunning. John likes contrasts. Weird John likes to contrast good and evil, light and dark, beauty and ugliness. And we see it throughout the Gospel. And this this is another example of that. Paul would write in Galatians 3.23, Before faith came, we were kept under custody under the law. Being shut up to the faith that was later to be revealed, therefore the law has become our tutor, our schoolmarm, if you will, to lead us to Christ. Ironically, it was the law that led this woman straight to Jesus that morning. It was some people using the law... And the perfection of the law to condemn her and bring her into His presence, although I doubt she expected the outcome. And the Pharisees were certain this time they had Him. The rabbi of Israel, he has to keep the law. There's no way around this one. And truly, if Jesus were to keep the law, there was no way around this one. But watch. Think about this. If Jesus condemned her, if He said, the law be fulfilled, she must be stoned, who among all of the sinners who hung around Him would spend any more time around Him at all? If that's where He leads, if He's just as churchy as everybody else, if He's just as legalistic as as all of those Pharisees, those sinners who love Him, the Pharisees might say, they'll see He's no friend of sinners at all. He condemns just like the rest of us. Ha! We got Him if He condemns her. What if He clears her? Then He would be in violation of the law of God that He claimed to represent. Either way, they got Him. He's nailed. Well, they thought they had him. They set him up. And Jesus stooped down. Verse 6, continuing. Jesus stooped down and with his finger he wrote on the ground. And the King James adds, as though he heard them not. My young ones do that to me all the time. (laughs) Stooping down as though they heard me not. 
And in this case, this is the only time in all four of the Gospels that we see Jesus writing anything. He doesn't write, typically. There's no record of Jesus passing a note. Eusebius has a brief little uh, excerpt in his history of the church that's interesting, and it's not verifiable really, except that he has this little note that apparently Jesus wrote to somebody. Interesting. But in the Gospels, we don't see it, except right here, this is the only time that Jesus wrote anything. And in verse 7, it says, When they persisted in asking Him, He straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, He stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, They began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. What did he write? Was it like a big arrow pointing to each one of the Pharisees, you know? (laughs) Was it their names and the women they had had affairs with? Was it just a listing there in the dust of the temple court of their sin issues? Beginning with peeping Pharisees? What did he write? Now listen. This is another reason why I believe this story is not only absolutely authentic, but it's right where it should be. The word right there in the Greek is katagraphane. Take note of that. Katagraphane. Two Greek words, kata and graphane. Graphane is from grapho, where we get graphic. It means to write. Grapho. It's a very simple word. But that's not the word used here. He didn't just write. He katagraphane. He wrote against. That's what katagraphane is translated. Kata means against. Write. To write against. And there is strong evidence then that Jesus did in fact write against the scribes and the Pharisees. I don't know what. But he wrote against. Here's what is absolutely intriguing. Jeremiah gave an old prophecy in Jerusalem 600 years before Jesus came. We've already read it this morning. Listen to it again. Jeremiah 17, verse 12, A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, verse 13, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down Because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Mind-blowing prophecy. What had Jesus just declared the very day before? He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now here's a group of Pharisees who reject the living water, and so he writes them down. Written down. Writing against. How do you get written up by the Lord? Reject the living water. How do you end up having the Lord Himself write against you, refuse the living water? And these dehydrated Jewish leaders were being written up by Jesus. You know, there's really only one place I want to have anything written about me by the Lord. The Lamb's Book of Life. Write my name there, Lord. That's where I want to be written up. Anywhere else, it's not a good idea. 
By the way, the next verse in Jeremiah's prophecy floats beautifully with the story before us. Jeremiah 17, 14 goes on and says, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. You could almost say Jeremiah 17, verses 12, 13, and 14 are the story that we're reading right now. With the writing, with the living water, and with the healing. Look at verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. How did she feel right then? Because you know up till that moment, she had one alternative, one option before her, stoning. She was dead. She was humiliated and she was going to be dead. That was it. From the moment they dragged her out of that bed or out of that location, wherever she was that morning, and threw her on the ground in front of Jesus, she was history, she was used, she was abused, and she was about to be thrown out. And now all of a sudden, she hears these words fall off the lips of Jesus. Then I don't condemn you either. What? What? Can you even imagine how that feels? I hope you can. Because it's how we feel when we give our lives to Jesus for the first time. No longer condemned. You don't condemn... What? You want to save me? Huh? She heard His word and instantaneously went from death to life. From condemnation to salvation, instantly, that's grace. Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. But wait a minute. What about the law? What about keeping the law? Did Jesus violate the law in order to set her free? No, He didn't. I love this. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, In the law, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Where were the witnesses? They had all been summarily dismissed when Jesus said, any of you without sin, go ahead and stone her. And all those witnesses of her sin were gone. Jesus didn't witness it. He wasn't there. Nobody in the court had seen this take place. Nobody else was there to testify against her. Gang, Jesus not only showed her grace, He kept the law perfectly. I mean, it's absolutely astounding. He keeps the law without condemning the woman. And this is what we've got to understand about our grace. God's grace never bends, never sidestrips, never violates His perfect law. Second thing to note, grace fulfills the law. The law can only condemn you. But the grace of God through Jesus Christ fulfills the law. Pays every last cent of our requirement to the law. Redeems us, not by skipping the law, but by fulfilling in the death of Jesus Himself. Listen to this. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, a couple of books to your right. Where Paul writes, verse 1. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to that again. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, I, that sentence alone, why would anybody not want Jesus? There's no condemnation in Jesus. Even your closest friends are going to condemn you sometimes. This world will condemn you. You're driving 60 in a 50 and you get a ticket. And on April 2nd, you have to go to Island County and deal with it. (laughs) Condemned. I got my kids in the car. I'm driving a minivan. Come on. I'm not a speedster here. I'm a dad. And they're adopted. Give me some help here. No credit, just condemnation. That's what the world wants to do. That's what the law does. That's what your sin does to you. Condemn. But Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why, Paul? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and listen, as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law condemns gracefully, completely fulfills the law, as Jesus takes all the lawful requirements on Himself. How could Jesus say to the woman, I don't condemn you? Because Jesus knew He was six months away from the cross. And on that cross, all the condemnation, all the shame, all the embarrassment, all the fallout of her sin, He would take it on Himself. So I'm not going to condemn you. The law condemns. But grace, grace fulfills the law. Paul puts it this way, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way. How? By just skipping over the law? No, by having nailed it to the cross. The death penalty for adultery? Yes, and Jesus died. For the adulteress. Death penalty for lying, Father? Yes. And Jesus died for the liar. Death penalty for murder? Of course, Jesus died for the murder. And so you see, the crucifixion of Jesus was absolutely critical because in the crucifixion, Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the righteous requirements of God's law so that He might turn to you, turn to me and say, now you get grace. The law has been paid for. You are free and clear. There is no condemnation. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He looks at the woman. And after saying, I do not condemn you either, He says, go from now on, sin no more. Sin no more. Does this story of this woman dilute the sin of adultery? Not at all. 
Jesus clearly tells her, stop sinning. I don't condemn you. Forgiven. Free. Graced. Cleansed. You're good to go. Now don't go back and do it again. Gang, number three, note this. The law can only condemn. Grace fulfills the law. Number three, the truth sets you free. The truth sets you free. And understand this. Freedom in Christ is more than removing the guilt and the shame of sin. Freedom in Christ. Jesus doesn't just free us from the condemnation of sin. He frees us from the continuation of sin. He makes it possible for me not to return to the same old vomit that I had been lapping up before. Gross? Hey, just as a dog returns to his vomit, Scriptures tell us. Jesus makes it possible for us to stop the sinful behavior. Far too often people go, the law condemns, grace fulfills the law, that's good enough. But see, Jesus... Is not just about grace, He's also about truth. And so He comes along and says, My grace has saved you. My my grace cleanses you. Now stop the sin. Don't keep going back to the same thing. You've been freed from that. Paul says, Romans 6 verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live under sin? Down in verse 14 of Romans 6, he says, Sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under the law. You're under grace. Which means my whole motivation now for following Jesus is grace, not law. It's not making myself right. It's He made me right. And it is a far greater far more powerful motive than law ever is. I found that with our church staff, by the way. I've learned this years ago. I learned this as as a staff person in church myself. If I was under law, I only did what was required. If I was under grace, I did far more. If I had a senior pastor working with me who gave me complete freedom to come and go as I, as I saw fit to do my ministry and to, and to fulfill my calling, man, all I wanted to do was my ministry. But if I had a senior pastor who was having me clock in, watching every step I made, making me turn in everything that I was doing, and keeping a, a close, watchful eye on me, riding herd on me as it were, guess what? <laughs> I only did what I had to. That's something about our hearts that Jesus knows. He gets. And He gives us now the motivation of grace that the truth might set us free from continuing in the sin that we were engaged in before. The law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8.2 And Jesus will say later on in this passage, John 8.32 You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. He'll say it back down in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. But the slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son does remain. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And in that moment, in that courtyard, the woman was free indeed. Free and clear. To stop sinning. Free and clear. Washed clean by the grace of Jesus Christ. 
So what happened to her after that? The Bible doesn't tell us. It's one of those many glorious stories that gives us an amazing perspective and then just leaves it to somewhere in the halls of history unrecorded. Where does she go from there? Did her life, did her heart fully change? I don't know. But the story's not about her. The story's about Jesus. The story is to illuminate for us, as John has told us over and over, to illuminate for us who Jesus is. How He responds. What He does. And this story, as we've covered, the law condemns, grace fulfills the law, and truth sets you free. Guess what? That's exactly how John set up the beginning of this Gospel. John 1.17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so we see Jesus in a beautiful way in this story. Will we see the woman in heaven though? Man, you guys are persistent with this question. (laughs) Will we see her in heaven? I don't know, but I can promise you this. If we do, in fact, see her, and I have a feeling we will, we will not know her as the adulterous woman. We will know her as a bride. We will see her as a bride. She will be among those of the bride of Christ. And speaking of the bride, I have one more thing I have to share with you this morning. As we began, I told you the phrase living water appears seven times in the Bible. Three times in the New Testament, four times in the Old. In the Hebrew Scriptures, Jeremiah 2.13 and Jeremiah 17.13 offering that living water which describes the Lord. And then Zechariah 14 verse 8, again, the living water that, that flows, that will literally flow out of the temple and out of the temple mount in the millennial kingdom. But to me, the fourth use of this phrase, living water, is the most compelling by far. It's in the Song of Songs. Chapter 4, verse 15. The Song of Songs is a Hebrew love song, spoken, sung primarily between a lover and his beloved. A lover singing of his beloved, of his bride. Chapter 4, verse 15. Listen to how he describes her. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water and streams flowing from Lebanon. One more time. You are a garden spring, a well of living water. Chaimayim. Flowing streams from Lebanon. It is the bride who is a well of Chaimayim. The bride who has this well of living water, this spring of living water, the bride does. That just blows my mind. I honestly, when I was kind of studying through and found that there were four references and I went to this reference, my first thought was, oh, okay, well, the groom would be the well of living water. The groom, you know, representing the lover, representing Jesus. He's the well of living water, but no, it's the bride. And it squares exactly with what Jesus says. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Husbands, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.25, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so, if we are privileged to meet this woman in this story, we will never know it. Because we will not see her in heaven as the adulteress any more than we will see each other in heaven as the sinner, or as in my case, the ticket holder. (laughs) Do you know what happens here in John 8? This is just overwhelming for me. Jesus proposed to the adulteress. He offered her His hand to be His bride in grace and in truth that she might become a garden spring, a well of living water as with anybody who comes to Jesus and to discover there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Revelation 19 verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You may feel thrown down from time to time or perhaps this morning. Someone today might even walk into this place an adulteress or an adulterer. Or you may be weighed down with some other sin in your life. Nobody knows but you. And you're carrying this stuff. We need to understand Jesus does not ignore our sin. He pays for it with His own blood. And He extends the same hand He extended to this woman. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. And if you want to be free of sin today, if you want to be free of sin, and that, that's another issue. Maybe there's an, an occurring, a recurring sin in your life that you just, man, I just want to be done with this. Or if you have any other need, come receive His grace this morning. I'm going to have Rachel sing a song, and you can sing along, but I primarily would like you to listen to the words.
sing the last verse again. And if you still have need to come forward and you want to pray with someone, I invite you to do it. Let's bow. Holy Father, your grace and your truth are absolutely overwhelming. Bubbling up from within like living water, gushing and flooding and washing and cleansing and quenching. And we are undeserving. Every last one of us, we are undeserving of your great mercy and grace. But we come to receive. And we accept the truth that we are incapable of achieving this grace without the mercy, without the blood of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, you will call us to your side. Call us to the cross. Remind us, dear Lord, constantly of how great the Father's love for us. And Father, I want to pray again if there's anyone here in this service or in the next who desperately needs to live in your grace, who desires the living water, that they might come and receive the free gift. I love you, Lord. We bless your name in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's sing that chorus together.